Let me see you put them up Reach the sky, touch the stars up above Cause it's one time for the underdog I'm Patrick Bidevi, host of ITM, and today I'm sitting down with Jack Murphy, former Army Ranger, and we talked about, is fake news real? Jack Murphy, good to have you on ITM. Thanks for having me. Yes. So, listen, uh, I know I'm a big fan of the movie Wedding Crashers, and I don't know if you've seen Wedding Crashers, or I know military, you some certain (laughs) must-watch movies in the Army, right? So, Wedding Crashers, and uh, the stories about Vince Vaughn and uh, Owen Wilson crashing weddings. Yeah. And that's pretty epic on what they've done. But in the movie, they never crashed a terrorist wedding, you know? <laughs> what do you do when you crash a terrorist wedding? I read about you crashing a terrorist wedding. Yeah. What is that all about? Do you kind of say, hey, let's go find the ladies at this terrorist wedding? or what? Uh, was- that, well, that would have been one way to go. I think she was about 16, so uh, it wasn't probably us. But uh, it was also an arranged marriage. It's a different part of the world. And, you know, the difficulty in finding terrorists, of course, is they're trying to stay below the surface and underground. They're trying to do everything they can to stop us from finding them. This was 2009 in Iraq, so they had gotten used to being hunted down by special forces teams. But we had intelligence information that told us where and when he was getting married. His name was Abu Ghani. He was a terrorist facilitator, doing IED strikes, all sorts of really nasty stuff. And we found out he was getting married in Mosul. So we came driving in in Humvees, crept right up to the compound where he was getting married, busted in the front door, raided it with uh, our Iraqi SWAT team counterparts. There was a... uh, How many people are there at this wedding? I'd say something about maybe 25 people or so. The dowry, the goat, was sitting there in the courtyard panting the entire time. I've seen that so many times when I lived in Iran. That was very normal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very very common. The, uh, The bride, they had already been married. The bride was in the other room with the women. The men were out front. They were getting ready to start drinking, actually, which is another custom after they get married. But Abu Ghani had not consummated the marriage yet, as we came to discover. So we kind of got there in the nick of time. We detained him. We also detained his father, who I didn't know this until we got him back to the base. He was very nonchalant, like didn't care at all. His wedding, his, his son's wedding just got raided by special forces, and he seemed like he had not a care in the world. It was weird. When we got back to... In the, what way, though? In what way? Like, not, not caring see, like I'm used to this, or not caring yeah, like... Like laughing, joking, like he didn't take it seriously. Um, I don't. No spe- fear. No fear at all. No, none at all. And I don't speak Arabic very well at all, so I couldn't communicate with him on that huh. level. But just for the, through the mannerisms, it was very clear. Interesting. He thought it was a joke. When we got back to the compound in, uh, in Talafer... You took both of them. We took both of them. One of the Iraqi SWAT team members was talking to me. We were smoking cigarettes in the bunker. And he said, yeah, the old man, he, he killed my cousin. And I was like, well, what? And he said, yeah, yeah, he killed my cousin. He killed a lot of people in Tel Afar back in the day. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? He's like, yeah, the old man is even worse than the son. He was putting fatwas on people, having police officers assassinated. Wow. And we went back there and found out, yeah, he was. He was like a serial killer. And you didn't know that at no, the time? No, at the time I had no idea. Interesting. So you went in for the son, realizing the, the father was more vicious than the son was. The, the son was more active at the time in terrorist networks, but the, the, the father was probably just as prolific. Under the new Iraqi laws uh, and the American agreement with them called the Status of Forces mm-hmm. Agreement, we had mm-hmm. to release both of them to Iraqi custody pretty much immediately. The father disappeared. I never saw him again. 
because he's now released into the custody of the police force that he had been terrorizing all those years. Never saw that guy again. Meaning, when you say never saw him again, what are you saying? Are you saying it he's was, dead or are you saying he's free? It was intimated to me that he was disappeared into the desert. The son was handcuffed to the cell and uh, we'd we would come back months later and he would still be wearing that same wedding suit, handcuffed, standing up Get in the cell. Get out of here. Yeah, no. Months later? Yeah. So, so the entire city hated this, these guys? Yes. And there's no, it was out of our hands, it was out of American wow. hands, not to excuse myself or, or push culpability yeah. elsewhere, but under the status of forces agreement, we could object, but we had no power to Very interesting. Intervene. Well, I mean, that's a different kind of a wedding to crash, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, you more, more power to you. <laughs> uh, so, so let me ask you, let's go back. So, sure. you know, some people joined the army because uh, the family's all army. Like I'm talking to General McChrystal, his dad's a two-star, mm -hmm. his uncle's this, everybody's this, everybody's the military. So, you know, from the moment I was a kid, I kind of know I was going to join the army, right? Some joined the army because of GI Bill, you know, I'm going to go get my GI Bill. Some joined the army for benefits. Some joined the army because it's a safe place. And then some joined the army because of an event took place that inspired them to want to join the army. A movie, an event, a crisis. What was the reason why you decided to serve? You know, I think I was one of those weird ones. I was one of those anomalies. I came from Westchester County, New York. Uh, my graduating class, I believe I was the only person who joined the military. Common. Really? Yeah, it's not a common thing around here. It's not something that people do. Interesting. But for me, although I didn't have any family members who were in the military, it was something I always wanted to do. Since I was a little kid, I knew this is who I wanted to do be. Do you know why? Do you remember a movie? Do you remember like any, like, did you watch a movie over and over again? Yeah, well, I, I was a big Platoon fan of all kinds of movies. Predator, I mean, Predator. I, 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 all those classic films, Aliens, the Space Marines are so cool. But there's one thing that got me interested in special operations. I think I was probably like eight years old. You remember the movie Patriot Games with Harrison Ford? Of course. There's that scene in the movie where the British SAS comes out through the desert and they raid this terrorist camp in Libya. And, uh, you know, this, the guy back at CIA headquarters is watching it on the satellite feed and he's sli sipping his coffee. He's like, yeah, that's a kill. And uh, my mind, as a little kid, I was struggling to understand, like, what, this isn't war like the World War II movies yeah. we see. What is this yeah. I'm looking at? And I asked my mom that I was watching it with, and she was like, secret mission. I was like, secret mission? You can do that? And she was like, yeah, of course. And I, I, that was, I think How that, old were you at the time? I was like eight, maybe, eight or nine. Well, you remember this vividly, this I remember vividly. with your mom? Yeah, yeah. And that was a moment where I was like, I want to be one of those guys. Did your mom have any problem when you joined the army? Was there any mom-son situation? She she had trepidations about it, of course. I'm, you know, her only son. I can't blame her for that. But she was very supportive. Uh, my my family is always very supportive of me joining. So who were you in high school? If I was in high school with you, who were you? I'd be the weird kid that put together computers, listened to electronic music, um, this antisocial weird kid. Yeah. From that to the army. Yeah, for sure. And you knew you were going to go in at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now you go in the Army. What, at what point did you go 11 Bravo, Ranger, Special Forces? When did that happen? Immediately, because I signed a, what's called an Option 40 contract. So that puts you into the pipeline to go to infantry basic training, airborne school, and then the Ranger indoctrination program. So it gives you a shot at going to a Ranger battalion. So pre-MEPS, when you signed your orders, you knew you were going to go through that. That was pretty yeah, much what yeah. you were signing up for. But you did mention that, you know, a catalyzing event. Um, for me, I, had, I knew I wanted to be in the military. I knew I wanted to go to war. Yeah. But before 9-11, that wasn't happening. We had a very peacetime military. So I was thinking about joining the French Foreign Legion. And I was planning on that. And then 9-11 happened and everything changed. I was like, well, the U.S. military is going to war. It's happening now. So went in and, yeah. Did I juice you up when that happened to you? Like, 
Did that, that piss you? What was the emotion that you saw? It, it, it made me angry because the brutality of it and the, the number of civilian casualties. But that's indicative of Al-Qaeda. I mean, it's a death cult. They, they, that's what they want. And it's almost killing just for the sake of killing. Well, you know how you hear these stories like, you know, football players spill, you know, I, you know, I, I saw it, I couldn't stand it. I was so, I wanted to do something to serve my country and I wanted to go get the enemy. Was that where the fire came? Like, I cannot believe they just did this to my soul. You are not gonna do this to my homeland. Was it that emotion? At the risk of um, maybe uh, ascribing more hindsight than foresight, uh, even as a teenager, I could see that terrorism was escalating in the United States. We see these events, the USS Cole, from Cobar Towers to the first World, uh, World Trade Center bombing. You see these escalating events, and it seemed like our government was not really taking it seriously. We weren't aggressively pursuing these guys, these networks overseas. Yeah. So 9-11, the fact that there was an escalating, a larger attack, was not necessarily a surprise. You know, I want, I want to come back to this because I, I, want, I want to know, one, what could we have done to prevent a 9-11? And number two, are we set up in a position today where another 9-11 could happen today or are we in a safer place where it can't happen today? Matter of fact, if you don't mind just touching up on that because mm -hmm. I, I talked to Carrick, I've talked to a few people that were involved in the whole 9-11 thing. Bernard Carrick was uh, the commissioner at that time when he was involved with this. But when you say America wasn't fully... Uh, uh, prepared or looking for protecting against attacks like that, what could we have really done differently at that time? There's been a lot of information coming out of the 9-11 Commission report, mm -hmm. even recently declassified documents about the Saudi involvement, and the Saudis were watching these guys, we were watching these guys, the CIA had some awareness of what they, that they were part of a cell and that they were planning something, that there was these transfers of money through Malaysia and elsewhere. I think there were many different opportunities to disrupt the network had we tried, but again, this is hindsight is twenty twenty. And then, of course, we could have been more aggressive in pursuing Al Qaeda abroad. There were opportunities to kill Osama bin Laden in Sudan and elsewhere. And I think the Clinton administration was a little risk adverse in pursuing some of those lines. Meaning? Meaning that they didn't want the potential political fallout. The 1990s comes on the tail end of Iran-Contra. A lot of consternation about covert operations, about assassinations during the Reagan years. Uh, so I, I think the, the administration saw the end of the Cold War happen and, and they didn't want to go back down that road. You know, you know one of the things that uh, um, I wonder is from the outside, it's almost like you know, if you make the decision and say we take somebody out or we go extremely aggressive to prevent, like for instance, I remember back in 76, 77, Carter was campaigning around about the whole human rights thing, right? right. Human rights, human rights, human rights. And they kept talking about that the Shah has 3,000 political prisoners in Iran. This was a whole, and I know you're dealing with something with Iran, that Iran has 3,000 political prisoners and this dictator is not being right and he's not doing the right thing and he should let him out and at the same time Carter was kind of pushing uh, Cuba with the whole Muriel boat lift you know yes. you 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 have all these prisoners you should let him out and you know finally uh, Cuba's like ah fine I'll let him out here's a Muriel boat lift I'll give you all my prisoners and yeah. they go to Miami Miami next year unemployment's you know 50 percent and Iran eventually they force those 3,000 political prisoners to come out and that you know creates Osama bin Laden all these ISIS all these other groups so how do we as you know, citizens who are not in it, 
how do we differentiate between the right decision and the wrong decision? I mean, we're never really going to know right, whether right. the president make the right decision or not. And, and very rarely is there a clear right and wrong. Any operation like the uh, 1980 uh, Eagle Claw operation to rescue American hostages being held in Iran, had that mission been a success, we all would have clapped our hands, you know, these are our heroes, you know, the, the administration's so great. But, you know, something I talk about in the book, I mean, it's a fine line between hero and zero. And I know I'm not saying the men who, who tried to execute that operation were zeros, far from it, they're actually my heroes, because they had, you know, as one, one author who wrote a book about it, he said they had the guts to try. One uh, Delta Force uh, officer who's retired, he told me, the worst thing that can ever happen to us isn't mission failure, as bad as that is. The worst thing that can ever happen to us is that all those people out there come to believe that we're too chicken to even try. That's the worst thing that can happen to us. That our public comes to believe that we're too chicken to defend them. Has that ever happened? I mean, well, again, with the risk aversion and these opportunities we had to, you know, assassinate bin Laden. But uh, who pulls that out, though? That's not the military. Because from, from my time in the military, like, you guys are itching for things. You know what I'm saying? It's like... Yes, the military you know, has to be held back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, you have to be held back. Yeah. Like, it's like a pit bull wanting to fight, <laughs> and you're like, listen, relax, relax, right? It's, it's coming from a different standpoint. So I don't know if America has that perspective of that happening. Maybe sometimes it is too much brutality that maybe we don't see. You know, when you hear about the whole waterboarding, well, I think they're just not being fair to the whole POW code that we have that you shouldn't be doing that and you shouldn't be doing this and you talk to guys that are in the moment they're like you don't even know what this guy did to that city you don't even know how brutal a human being this is like the stuff we tell you what this guy did wouldn't even make it in movies it's the tactical versus strategic view and tactically there may be something to be gained from those sorts of interrogations but strategically and uh, morally on the world stage we may lose power uh, or soft power or prestige and those are all things that have to be taken into account how do you process the two, though? How do you decipher between the two? Are there some things that are better known, the public not known about? I mean, I, I'm a... You know I, what I'm asking. I know what you're asking, uh, but I, I, I'm an advocate for transparency, and I believe there has to be government accountability. There has to be oversight. I think it's incumbent on the American public to know about these things. I think that they, I don't think they can just wash their hands and pretend like they can't send the Jack Murphys of the world to go and do their dirty work and think their hands are clean. That's not okay. It will come back on us and it will impact our country. I mean, you can see what's happening now. All these veterans are coming home and a lot of them are struggling. Struggling with PTSD, TBI, joblessness, homelessness. We can't just turn around and, and pretend that we're not responsible for these things. What happened to them with? Taking responsibility for the aftermath of war. That's, that's what I'm getting to. The human damage, the psychological and physical damage. There's no done. question. I did a podcast with a group of uh, four Marines and they were talking about, uh, Pat, what do you think needs to happen with this whole you know, PTSD? So many people are experiencing it. I mean, we got 30 million veterans right in America right now and you don't know how many of them are going through the whole ETS. Half the part is, not being able to adjust from the military life to yeah. the civilian life. Yeah. That's very tough, by the way. Most people don't realize like the difficulties with that. You're accustomed to a system, four o'clock, six o'clock formation, chow, PT, you know, it's like everything is, you're being told what to do next and then you're going to the civilian life. So we've, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, uh, PTSD on different podcasts. But the question I'm asking you is, are there some things that is better off people not knowing about. I guess let me explain it this way. Parents, they do certain things. They go through certain things. 
Should kids know everything? And they protect their children. Yeah, should kids know everything? So should the populace, because I, and I'm telling you this, being very transparent with you, I think a person who's a president sits there and says, this is going to create havoc if we tell the media about it. They're going to go nuts. This is going to create havoc. We're better off not disclosing this because if we do, it's going to lead to the enemy that we're trying to attack, knowing about our strategy, our game plan is going to be public. So how do you decipher between the two? Well, there's definitely a role for government secrecy, military secrecy. All of those things are imperative, uh, I, I think, for carrying out successful operations. But as a veteran, I don't think it's really our role to come back home and sort of shame our culture or try to make them feel bad. You know, I deal with some things that, that I witnessed or was involved in, as does you know most of the guys who are over there. But do I want to put that monkey on the back of you know, the people I rode on the subway with to get here today? No, of course not. So I, I think there is a role in protecting them from that. We don't want those people to have to live with the things that a lot of our soldiers do. It's not necessarily that we're not willing to tell them the truth. It's more that we're not going to just empty all of it onto them. There are moments where you're in the heat of the battle, right? So if there's anxiety levels where it peaks, okay, uh, you, you know, you're first going to your first war and you land in Iraq the first time. Maybe there's a little bit of a, you know, anxiety, sure. there, right? Or the first time you do a jump, okay, and it's a, you know, whatever, a secret jump you're doing late night at 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay, you don't know where you're going, you have your night vision goggles on, it's a little bit of anxiety there. I don't know if they're going to see us, if they see us, am I going to die and I'm just going to go down? Like your imagination takes, sure, the, sure. takes a hold of you. What was the moment for you where you're, if there's a Richter scale like they do in football games of how loud the audience is being, when was it when it just went off the charts and you were fully so much heat in the battery, like, I don't know what the hell is about to happen right now. What was that moment for you? Yeah, there was, there was, I mean, when you say that, there's one moment that jumps out at me, uh, and it was my first deployment to Afghanistan. And uh, it was a situation where we were on a reconnaissance patrol. I was a sniper at the time, and we had been uh, tasked with tracking down the uh, individual who, tra- who planned the ambush that killed Pat Tillman, actually. And uh, we went out, and I was at what's called the mission support site. It's like a handful of guys who are kind of stationary with a radio while a six-man reconnaissance patrol is out actually reconning the objective. And what the recon patrol told us was that there was a, uh, they had eyes on a 10-person element, it looked like Taliban, with um, heavy weapons moving towards our location. And what I made the decision to do was to set in a hasty near ambush on the road so that we could ambush these guys before they got to the MSS. So we went down the road a little bit. I I had one other American with me and about 10 Afghan paramilitary soldiers who had been trained by the CIA. Put them all down in the prone position behind trees, trying to get them down behind cover, Uh, even though they all wanted to squat and fire from the hip, trying to get everybody down, trying to get everyone positioned, um, trying to do the ranger school thing, as difficult as that is in real life. And then I got down in the prone behind a tree and I remember sitting there looking, looking over the scope of my sniper rifle down at the road. It's probably like 15 meters in front of me, if that. I'm like, man, like we're really going to be on top of these guys. And they're about to come down the road any moment. And that was a moment for me where like fear 
just abject fear. It was like a physical fear. I don't think it was even my mind. It was like my body telling me, you're about to die. And it just washed over me. It was a, a kind of a pivotal moment for me, I think, in, in the sense that I made a decision right then. I, I, I knew I was about to die, and I said, well, I'm going to take as many of them with me as possible. And then I was calm. Uh, like, whatever that was, I just, I had pushed through it, and I feel like something changed inside me that day. How long was that process? Like, as you're going through it, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh my Less gosh. Less than a minute. Less than, exactly. Less That's than a minute. Crazy. Yeah. From high anxiety to being calm. Yeah. Like, you accept that, in fact, I could die right now, screw it, I'm going to have to do my best. Yeah. And you do what, you know, you were trained to do. And uh, unfortunately, this story doesn't have a, a happy ending. But amazingly, it could have been much worse. It was a friendly fire incident. Because what happened was that the reconnaissance wow. patrol walked into the hasty ambush that I had set up. The result was a, a, a fairly substantial firefight. There were bullets chewing into the tree that I was taking cover behind, dirt being kicked up in my face. The Afghans started jumping up and down, talking on the radio. There, there's something clearly wrong, but we didn't understand what. And um, eventually it came across, no shoot, no shoot, stop, stop, stop. But because of the language barrier, we could not. We did not have communications with who, our, our recon patrol or our MSS, the, mm -hmm. the mission support mm -hmm. site. And because of the language barrier, it's difficult to talk to the Afghans. So at this point, the, the only thing to do, which I, I was remiss to do because you never stand up in an ambush, but somebody had to sort this thing out. So I told the one other American with me, like, look, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to go down there. And I'm going to figure out what's Come going on. on. Yeah, uh, I, I, I didn't feel like you know, I had any other choice at, that, at the time. So I stood up, uh, walked down to the road. Literally like this. You have to hold up the weapon or what are you doing? Because if you go I, like this, I'm thinking you're going to shoot me. I held my weapon in my hand because I didn't know who was down there. Okay. And I, I walked down to the road. And as I got down there, I came face to face with my good friend, Paul, who was on the recon patrol. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we both said, what the fuck just happened? Anybody got killed? No. Oh, wow. One person was shot. One I, person was shot. I shot them, yeah. You shot the one person as a sniper. Wow. So how does the military handle situations like that when you go back? <laughs> like, seriously, is there I, like I, a meeting? I, hey, what is wrong with you guys? I'm sorry to laugh because of the seriousness of the situation. And, and one soldier was hurt, although um, it was a flesh wound, thank God. But the, the military doesn't necessarily uh, know how to handle something like that. They launched an investigation, you know, right off I the bet. bat, yeah. which, you know, with, with cause, there's good reason to. So they sent an investigator down and interviewed us, and then they, they made a determination. They, they didn't necessarily fault me for it. They, they acknowledged that I made sensible tactical decisions. There were some things that could have been done differently, both tactically and communications-wise, that could have stopped that incident from taking place. But I carried out the rest of the deployment, uh, doing my job. Good for them. Yeah, yeah. They, they had every reason to make me a human sacrifice, and they didn't. Well, and, and it just tells your comrades, your peers, it's something, told the story on what it's, it's something I'm very grateful to the Ranger Regiment for giving me a second chance because they didn't have to do that and, and the regiment isn't known for giving second chances. Really? It's not. <laughs> no. uh, so it, it, uh, that they gave me the opportunity to prove myself or redeem myself is something I'm very grateful to them how, for. How many times were you in a situation where you actually had to go up against the enemy and, and and, and take the kill shot. How many times were you in situations like many that? Many times. Um, I don't think I necessarily killed anyone, but many times in firefights, the next deployment was 2005 to Iraq, where it was a very hot deployment. We were in Mosul. 
we were doing what was called TSTs or time sensitive targets. So the intelligence was being developed so quickly, the churn was happening mm -hmm. so quickly mm -hmm. that sometimes we would get to go into a room and have a brief and say, okay, this is where we're going. This is a basic plan of action, scheme of maneuver. A lot of times it happened so quickly, they just gave us a grid. Here you go. And you get on the vehicles and go. There were times where they told us to just get on the vehicles and go. And I didn't get a grid until we were on the way there until we were already outside the gate. And I, I know that because I was towards the second half of the deployment, I was the what's called the TC, the tactical commander, tank commander is what it comes from, mm -hmm. on uh, striker vehicles, these eight-wheeled, you know, they're like 25-ton vehicles. I would have the laptop open with the GPS and the, the map on it. Yeah. Uh, called is a program called Falcon View. And the grid would come over the radio and I'd have to plug it into the computer like, oh, okay, that's where we're going and then lead the convoy to the target. So things were happening so quickly and we were getting in a firefight so often. It, it was three months of, it's supposed to be a marathon, but it felt like a three month uh, sprint. <laughs> We were just exhausted. By the way, Pat Tillman was the NFL guy, right? Correct. Was, I said Spillman. I don't know why I said Spillman. Maybe there was another linebacker uh, with that name. But Pat Tillman. So, so you know, how much of it today? Because when I think about it, I'm like, okay, when you think about war today, how much of it is airstrike? Is the same idea with bayonets and, you know, you would have to go do the bayonet exercise and boot camp and, you know, marksmanship and, oh, you're an expert, you're this. How much does you know, foot on the ground still have the same effect versus today it's just an airstrike. Hey, get the grid, you know, make the shot, you know, attack the enemy and it's game over. How much of it has changed with airstrike versus ground? Yeah, I mean, I think even since the Vietnam War, things have changed substantially because of the technology, precision-guided yep. munitions, our ISR with drones and satellite coverage and everything else has improved things significantly. but. With that said, we find ourselves fighting in urban built-up areas. We end up finding ourselves fighting counterinsurgencies. Like I was talking about before, TSTs or high-value target strikes, where you're trying to capture the leadership of these terrorist networks. Or even things where you're doing something that involves hostage rescue. Not that I was involved in that specifically. Or if you're trying to do counterproliferation and secure weapons of mass destruction. These are all things that robots cannot do for us yet. Mm -hmm. So there's still a necessity to put boots on the ground. Uh, there's things that only human beings can do. And going into, you know, raiding a, uh, a high-rise uh, hotel and pulling a terrorist out of a certain room is something that, you know, robotics and satellites and artificial intelligence can't do and probably aren't gonna be able to do for at least a few more decades. At least a few more decades. Okay. But eventually you're thinking that the whole thing's gonna go into a, you know, uh, technology in the next few years. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you can see Special Operations Command right now is developing what's called the Talos suit, which is an exoskeleton. Runs off of, at least the last I knew, it ran off a combination of gasoline, electric engine. It was designed to mitigate the fact that we have operators, we have soldiers entering and clearing rooms and guys are getting shot going through the doorway. Guys are getting blown up when they go into rooms by uh, IEDs or suicide mm -hmm, vests. Mm -hmm. So they had this idea, we'll develop this exoskeleton and, and it'll help protect our soldiers. But if you think about it, the exoskeleton itself is really just a stepping stone to having autonomous androids that do the room clearing for us. I mean, that is the next logical step after the exoskeleton. I don't think we're far off from it. I don't think it's something that we're far off from it. I, you know, it's so crazy. You watch movies and you say, oh my gosh, that's crazy. It'll never happen. And you just 
20, 30 years later, it's becoming a reality. It's in our lifetime. Yeah, it's yeah, in it's our, in our lifetime. Lifetime. I, I agree. Yeah. I think it's in our lifetime. So, you know, I, I talk to my buddies who were in the military, you know, and, and I ask them, those who went to war and actually experienced stuff and they were part of stuff, right? Whether it's Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein or any of this stuff. And I ask them, I say, so what you saw when you were a part of it versus what the media <laughs> talked about, how do you feel about it? And I've had certain answers I've heard, but I want to hear from you. How, what is the level of accuracy of what the media says versus what actually happened? Well, the media... Because uh, so now you're part of the media, right? Yeah, so yeah. To, I, work as a, I work as a journalist, but yeah. I, I won't parse my words on it. I, I mean, I think the, the American media overall, they're, they're fairly accurate with their facts. Um, and this is the thing that you have to explain to people a lot of times, is that your facts can all be right, but the story is still wrong because it's contextualized in a certain way. Interesting. And the, the, the press a lot of times misses that context. Um, sometimes it's because of a bias. Sometimes it's just because they're in the moment. They're, they have to report that one story, get it in, make their deadline, move on to the next story. And they don't have time for that really like in-depth uh, reporting. So you end up with something that's sort of ahistorical. Um, it doesn't really give you the context of, of what's happening. But as far as you know, my experience versus what I see in the media, uh, um, that was something I tried to capture a, a lot in the book because I think there's just such a difference between what we experienced in the moment in combat versus how we come to feel about it in the decades afterwards. And, and we know, we know more information in the decades afterwards than we did at that time when you were, you know, you're that guy on the ambush line you know, you have very limited information, but you know, as you come to learn more and more about what was going on, both tactically or geopolitically, you come to know a lot more. And sometimes as veterans, what we do is we use that information we've acquired after the fact to color our experiences. And, and that leads to a, maybe an inaccurate perception of what was happening at the time. So when you watch media right now, who do you trust? Um, me, me, like for, for instance, let me explain to you what I mean uh, so I don't position it as I'm trying to pigeonhole you to saying CNN, Fox, or MSNBC. I'm, that, that's not what I'm asking. Let me preface what I'm asking. Sure. So back in the days, you know, you would hear about, uh, in Iran we had a TV guy who was my father-in-law, my uh, sister's husband's father who passed by Sabatimani. He would tell the news and it was just telling the news. Here's what right. happened, right? Cronkite would tell the news and here's what happened. Today. It's I'm telling my news on what's going on, right? Because I'm emotionally attached to one side or I'm emotionally right. attached to my own political beliefs. And no one's a dummy. Everybody knows Fox leans to the right. CNN leans to uh, left. Uh, uh, and MSNBC is maybe further left than CNN is. And New York Times being here, it's pretty, pretty much all left. Business Insider is probably going to be independent. You know, you can go through all these things on where they're going to be at. Time is going to be on the left. New York Post is going to be on the right. Washington Post is going to be on the left. All these things you look at. Who is the fairest today that is actually telling the news that when you look at saying, this person is being, being fair here, who would you say it is? You know, I, I don't really put any stock in any particular news outlet, especially, you know, the bigger ones are staffed by many different editors, many different points of view, many different, you know, potential agendas. So I, I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket one way or the other. I think in the in the realm I work in, in the defense or special operations news, there's very few people who bring the meat and potatoes, I think. There are a few out there that I, I've read that I think are pretty good. I think uh, Sean Naylar is a pretty good journalist. I think Kevin Maurer is another guy who's done some really good work. And I think they do their best to tell the truth. You know, of course, 
what the truth is depends on where we sit. You know, I might have a different perspective than somebody else, but I think those are a few who do their best. Yeah, so you went to Columbia University and your major was uh, political science, I believe, right? Yes. You did the poli sci. Yeah. And uh, why? What happened? What's the, what's the reason post-military to go into journalism? Because, you know, for me, again, what I'm curious to know is that something happened for you to say, I think I can do it better. I think the truth needs to be told. I think the integrity of journalism is gone. What inspired you want to go that route? I wish I could say that uh, my reasons were so noble, but uh, really it was something that I kind of stumbled my way into. I um, came out of the military um, like a lot of th- like a lot of other veterans, not really necessarily knowing what I was going to do with myself. My girlfriend was pregnant. We were going to have a baby. Very excited about that, but. Now I have to completely refigure out what I'm going to do with myself. So I started college, started at uh, Mercy in Dobbs Ferry, which is just up the line here. Uh, it's a good school, did my first year there, but I figured I'd take advantage of my GI Bill and do the best I possibly can. So I uh, applied to Columbia and NYU, and I uh, ended up going to Columbia. Went there, got my degree. Initially, I was getting my degree in history, but I got kind of frustrated uh, with the history department, as I write about in the, uh, in the book a bit and changed my major to political science, which uh, was good. It was a good call. I, I, I enjoyed that. Then I had written a novel. I, I, I had this idea that, you know, you have these thriller writers out there, and some of them are very good, but most of them didn't serve in the military at all. And, you know, here I did all these things in, in Rangers and Special Forces. Why don't I take a stab at it? So I wrote a book, the novel, and then that got me kind of um, found by other people who asked me to start writing like weapons reviews and gear reviews, mm, you know, real it. basic stuff like that. And that's what kind of got me into online media. And then at a certain point, um, I was working with this former Navy SEAL who proposed, let's go off on our own, start our own website, own news and information website. I agreed. And that was kind of the genesis of it. And as it evolved, I, I realized, you know, I was like, look, we need to do, if we're going to be credible, we need to do real news. We need to start going abroad, not just writing about our recollections, telling war stories from the good old yeah, days. We yeah. need to start going overseas. We need to start shaking hands, meeting people, interviewing people, and, and doing some real reporting. So it was a, it was a progression that happened uh, somewhat accidentally. Every industry has a certain set of guidelines that they're held accountable, whether it's a fiduciary responsibility or whatever they have. What responsibilities and guidelines do journalists have and who holds them accountable? Like, you know, financial, we're uh, 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 in an insurance side, you're gonna be, the, you know, State Department of Insurance holds you accountable. Okay, lawyers, state bar, you know, is gonna uh, hold you accountable. Securities, I'm securities. You know, SEC, FINRA holds you accountable. Who holds journalists accountable? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And the, the question also involves do we hold people accountable for exercising their freedom of speech? And, that, and that's something that we can apply across society at large. Yeah, but, but the difference is I'm not a journalist. Let's just say... Right, should, you, the, should the standard yeah, be no, higher? Of course. I yeah. mean, for me, first of all, if, I, if you on your uh, Twitter account, if it says journalist, I have to hold you at a higher yeah. standard because you're getting paid for it, right? Somebody that's not getting paid for you know, sharing their thoughts, that's a different story. But you are a professional journalist. Who holds you accountable? You know, in an ideal world, I think uh, editors would hold their 
employees accountable. Publishers would hold their editors and employees accountable. But at the end of the day, I think it's the public that has to hold journalism accountable. And um, the public right now is at a time and place where they are addicted to the outrage and they're probably not at all well-placed to hold journalists accountable. So yeah, we're in a challenging time right now for journalists and not to speak bad about you know some of my peers, I suppose, but journalists can be incredibly self-indulgent, self-involved and self-righteous. And in some ways, these journalistic institutions come to resemble the power structures that they claim to speak truth to. They engage in a lot of the same type of behavior. So I think we're in a period right now where, uh, of um, readjustment and, you know, I, I don't even know if our generation is really going to figure that out. That might be our kids that are able to grapple with the Internet and social media and uh, finding some sort of sanity in there. You know what I'd like to see? Here's what I'd like to see. I wouldn't mind seeing this. Uh, uh, think about, Mario, think about if journalists, you have a, uh, uh, you know how FICA score? Everybody's got a FICA score. Yep. and You go Experian, TransUnion, Equifax. Okay, you got a 620 score. I'm the bank. I'm not going to give you a good rate, but I'll give you 6.1%. You got to put 25% down instead of 10%. Whatever. You know, your credit score is 820. No problem. What do you need financing? Here's a million dollars. You got your house. You're good to go because your credit score is good. Based on your last 10 years or 7 years, you paid everything on time. You're solid. You paid off one house. Another house, you paid off four cars. You're good. We trust you. I mean, I would love... Like, you know how you have Yelp holds businesses accountable? You know, you got some of these places that hold... Matter of fact, it's a, it's a business opportunity. If, we, if there was a website, like Pew Research is middle. Like, Pew doesn't come out and lean right or left, right? When CNN says polls came out, President Trump's State of Union speech was horrible because, you know, and then Fox comes out and Trump's State of Union speech historically is going to be known as the greatest State of Union speech of all time. Okay, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Okay. Pew Research is there. I would be so curious to know about a scoring system that scores the validity of journalists and who's telling the truth and who is so emotionally caught up in what they're telling. So you can simply pull it up and say, oh, now I realize who are the guys that score the highest because these guys tell the truth. They don't add their opinion to it. And this other guy's emotional. I'm not going to listen to this guy anymore. Yeah, by but, the way, that's an opportunity for business, just so you but, know. But now you're, you're asking to uh, you know, objectify truth. That's a difficult, you know, how, not, do you, how do you not, put a meter on that? Not necessarily, not necessarily. I like, for instance, if you put that uh, uh, barometer on Alex Jones, okay, if, if it's going to be based on five, like, you know, I, I don't know if you're a sports guy, you're a sports guy. No, you're, not particularly. Okay. No. You know, big debate. Oh, who's the greatest, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? So like a modern, you're right now, everybody, you should talk about uh, Jordan against, M, uh, against Kobe, today's Jordan But you against, can look at their stats. But there are elements that you can't look at stats. For instance, Who's a better teammate, right? Mm -hmm. You know, some may say, well, people like playing with LeBron more. Well, what does that really mean? You know, they like playing with LeBron because he's a better locker room guy. He's nicer, he's cool, he's chill, he's a guy you can go hang out with. But people saw the killer instinct of MJ. How the hell you measure killer instinct? You can't measure, you can't say, <laughs> here, take my blood, I'm a, a positive KI. What's KI? I'm killer instinct, I score at the highest level. So for me on the, on the journalism side, I think there's going to be some that's going to be, here's how many lies have been told this year, 97, okay? And then the other side will be sensation, sensationalized. What's sensationalized? You'd probably put Alex Jones in there. You'd probably put a bunch of different guys in there from both sides. So I think there's got to be a way to hold your industry accountable because it's getting very annoying. 
I, I'd agree uh, with and, you there. And when I'm telling you it's getting very annoying, it's getting very annoying because I don't even want to turn on Fox or CNN. I turn I'm off all you the right notifications now. on my phone. I don't want to see it anymore. So I, all I'm, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm giving you a rant a little bit because I'm, every time I talk to anybody from any industry, I speak freely on what I think about your industry and then you can do whatever you want. One of my good friends, Phil Heath, who's a seven-time Mr. Olympia, he and I were going back and forth on text uh, uh, last night and just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he brought up and he says, you know, because of our conversation we had on what you thought about the Mr. Olympia, I have made these different adjustments and here's what it's led to. It's led to this business, to that, to that business. But, you know, I sit there myself, here's what I want. I want somebody to do news the following way. This is my, this isn't a perfect world. This is utopia for me. This is nirvana, <laughs> right? This is like I'm living with unicorns flying all over the place. For me, it would be a journalist to say, hey, here's where we're at. Democrats look at this as the following five things. Democrats are going to say, he did this, he did that, he did this, he did that, he did that. Okay? That's what they're saying. Okay? And that's what they're bothered by. Republicans are going to say, ta 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 Here's what they're comfortable with. Here's what they're not happy with. Here's what Democrats are going to say. Now, let me give you some of the stuff that neither is paying attention to. Pa, 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 pa. This is what they're not paying attention to. These are the things that we have to really pay attention to. I think Republicans make good points on these two. Democrats make good points on these two. But these three points, you may want to go research for yourself a little bit more. I don't see a lot of that see, today. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'd love to see that. Uh, the problem right now is that the market is speaking. And the market doesn't want that. The market could go and just read wire reports off Reuters and AP. I know about that. Is it micro? You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, micro. Dirty Jobs. Yeah, he write, he would write stuff on Facebook, 600,000 shares. Yeah. And he's just kind of telling you the simple middle, I don't put the guy as Republican, I don't put the guy as, I put the guy as the middle, and the market says, we like it. I wish he, you know, he would do more stuff that we do can Do you think they about. would open their wallets for it? Do I think they would open up their would wallet? Pay, would they pay for that content? No, I, I think they don't open up uh, their wallet, not because of they don't want that to be told. And I'm being very uh, honest with you. I think they don't want to open up that wallet because they personally don't want that to be told. And I'll explain to you why. Okay, journalists. I, I tell you what a journalist is. Here's, here's how I look at a journalist. A journalist is somebody that the more division there is, the more money they make. Let's just face the truth. The more division... So the, the publisher, the journalist isn't getting a paycheck increase. Put the guy at the top, the guy that runs the business, the owner of, you know, uh, Turner, right. you know, uh, Fox, Rupert, and, put, put all And then that trickles down and they... Yeah, so yeah. I'm looking for division. I don't want United. I don't want the United States of America. I make money when it's the divided States of America. I'm killing it with advertisement when everybody is, you know, trying... When I create this image that everybody hates each other. It's not even the truth. Like, we get yeah. along today better than ever, but let's create this image that there's really a bigger war going on. So, yeah. for me, they would pay for micro because there would be viewers. Look at Joe Rogan. Here's what Joe Rogan did. Joe Rogan said, screw everybody. Screw all of you. I don't want to be on TV and net. I don't need my own show. I'm going to go put my own podcast. And he's killing all of these and other guys. I, I think you're right that what you're seeing with that is that the tide is starting to turn and that the public is ready for the sort of long-form discussions that maybe they weren't ready for just three years ago. Now they're ready to sit down and listen to you know, a Joe Rogan interview 
for three and a half hours. I don't think people would have been ready for that even just a few years ago. And I, I think that is an indicator that the tide is starting to change. Yeah, so now the whole thing is going to be, if YouTube is going to be not comfortable with some of the stuff we talk about. You know, we, we've had a couple of interviews we've done where it's, you know, all of a sudden we'll get an email saying this one's not going to be accepted really? for advertisement. Many of them. How many emails we get like that, Mario? Wow. This is not for advertisement. How, did they say why? Oh, yeah, like I brought on board Jim Jenkins. Jim Jenkins was uh, one of four people in the room that was part of the autopsy for John F. Kennedy when okay. he was assassinated. And he held a brain. He held a brain. And he told us, and when you see this guy, Jim Jenkins, for 50 years, he's never wanted to have limelight, ever. He's like, don't bother me. He is, you know how you meet somebody, like you know how you meet a girl and you're like, ooh, she is extremely flirtatious. Holy moly. I know exactly what she's doing, right? You meet a guy and you know he's a player. It's not hard to figure out when you see a guy, you know he's a player, like he's a woman. I was like, oh, he was a little bit too comfortable with those three girls. You know he can get it done pretty easily. And then you know you meet a guy, you're like, that guy's just a good guy. You know, that guy's a simple guy. That, that girl's a simple girl that was, you know, when you meet Jim Jenkins, you'll say, wow, just a regular guy. He's been married to the same wife 60 years, just sitting there 55 years. Just she's, she's sitting right there, hi, how are you? Good to meet you. Very innocent. And he tells a story and we take him to the whole Dealey Plaza and we show him the whole thing and he says, no, I think the shot was from here. And we got 600,000 views for a speak, boom, they shut it down. And then it stopped and now it's getting 200 views every other day. What happened there? Certain stories. So now going back to you saying, is the public wanting to see it? The public absolutely wants to see it, but who wants to block it from it being seen? That's the question. YouTube's one of the best platforms out there. I love YouTube. I love what YouTube yeah. allows us to do. I think it's one of the best. To me, I'm more YouTube than I'm Google, Facebook. I am all YouTube. I love, like, for me, consuming content, it's great. But the point I'm trying to make to you is the following. When you say, are people willing to pay for it? Number one, screw what people are willing to pay for. People are willing to pay for prostitution. I'm not going to go start a business of prostitution. I'm going to start a business because I want to legitimately make a difference in people's lives and tell the truth where long term I'm going to gain credibility where someone's going to say, dude, when that guy talks, it's the truth. That guy's got a lot of credibility. So I think there is market for it. I just think what we're missing is some brass. For somebody with some brass to come out and say, I'm going to create my own media company and the way we're going to do it is the following way. We're telling this. And if you go off story and you sensationalize, you're out of here. Go work for CNN and or Fox. You're uh, not going to work at We've done company. that for the last seven years. And I'll tell you, though, it's an, it's an uphill. you. Yeah, yeah, it's an uphill struggle. You know, people are addicted to their outrage. They want to be angry every day. And there's, there are statistics that they've done um, on, uh, at the New York Times and elsewhere. There's a book yeah. called Contagion that looked at it pretty in-depth. Contagious. Contagious. The book? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. Where they talk about, yeah. you know, what gets people to click. We've read that many, many times. Yeah. It was last month we read it, yeah. Yeah, it's a good, good book. Yeah. And, um, but I, I do think you're right that the tide is starting to change. But that's going to be a process. It's going to take a while. Yeah, so here's what I believe in. We open up an office. I run a business. I run a financial firm. And we open up an office. We originally started with California. And it was in San Fernando Valley, Glendale, Northridge. We were in that market. So then I decided to go open up an office and go complete opposite side, which is Miami. So we open up the office in Miami. And when I go to my Miami office, this is what they start telling me. They say, Pat, let me tell you, Miami's different. I said, what? Because everybody showed up late to the meeting. I'm like, wait a minute. What, what was this all about? Oh, Miami's different. What do you mean by Miami's different? You don't understand Miami. I said, no, no, no. 
It's not I don't understand people. Uh, Miami, what do you mean you don't? Miami is different. Well, Miami is more chill and people kind of show up when they want to and all this. BS. I said, let me put it to you this way. Open the blinds. I opened up the blinds. Was this office? I said, how many buildings do you see out there? A bunch of them. How many? Count them. Pat, not enough to count. Give me a number. 500. Perfect. Those buildings were built by a group of people that had to be held accountable and stay disciplined to build those buildings up. Yes or else, no one's going to trust to live in that building because it's going to come down. Yes or no? Yes. So they have to show up on time or else they're going to get fired. Yes, yes. And there's deadlines, right? Yes. Everything you're saying, I don't agree with. I told these guys. I said, there's always a market for somebody that's willing to do it right. Now, to what, do what other people aren't willing to. Yeah. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, my opinion, my opinion today, my opinion today, there is a massive opportunity. I'm not in your world. Like, I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I'm telling you. So maybe this does something for you to, you know, go and say, look what this guy admitted today. He's an insurance guy. But here's what he said. I think there's a massive opportunity for someone to say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's our scoring system. This is what we do. We make a bad score. Our guys publicly, we get a lower score. It, I think there is, it, it's a place where the sensationalized journalists would hate to work at. But it would be a place where I would pay $99 a month. Every month I would pay for you to send me an email on a daily basis with everything that took place structured in a way where I hear both sides, I would pay $99 a month. And I'm willing to bet thousands of people would also be willing to pay $99 a month to understand both sides and hold everybody accountable to say, okay, fair. This is good. There, there is an emerging market for that, but I think that you may be overestimating the size of it right now. I, I don't think the average person is ready for that. I think it would freak the average person out, actually, to have their emotions removed from their political beliefs. I mean, that's like tearing someone's religion away Let from me them. have the emotion, not you, the journalist. I don't want you to have the emotion as a journalist. I want the journalist to tell me the truth. Let me have the emotion. Your job isn't to tell the uh, uh, emotion side. The journalist is to tell me what took place. I, I, if we have a relationship. You're the expert. I'm not the expert. I don't have time to go run a research and do everything. By the way, I'm not calling you out. I'm no, telling you, I'm okay. not calling you. I it's an important conversation. I watch your videos. I saw your business insider. Here's the guns. This is the one people don't like. I like <laughs> this one because this one works this way. But the most common weapon is AK-47 because even till today, AK is the best one because it's simple. It's easy. It's duplicated. But the gun I would always carry is a 9mm because you can always find the ammo no matter where you're at. I, I watch this stuff and it makes sense. So I'm not saying anything by your approach. I'm talking about the industry yeah, yeah. you represent. No, no, I mean, these are valid criticisms. Yeah. And I, I think it's gonna take a while for us to evolve out of this pit we're in right now. Uh, I just hope we can do it quickly enough before we, we devour, <laughs> cannibalize one another. I can talk to a guy like you uh, uh, forever. I'm, I'm always curious and have so much respect and admiration for somebody that's willing to put their life on the line for me to be able to go build a business. and you know, live my dream life. I can't do it without a guy like you. Every time I see somebody in a military uniform in, in a, 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 the airport, I just I say, hey, hey, come here, come here. I'm gonna tell you, listen, you're amazing what you're doing. Thank you for what you're oh, doing. Oh, that's cool. It's, you have to do it because I don't think they get enough. But you know, for me, I think there's a massive opportunity today for that world. And I'll explain to you who would be your audience. When you build a business, you look at who's your audience. You don't look at, well, you know, such and such people don't have my product. I started selling insurance and I was a Middle Eastern. And the first thing Middle Easterns would say is, Pat, no Middle Eastern buys life insurance. Why? 
One, it's a religion thing. Two, they don't like it. Three, the husband thinks that you're hooking up with the wife. Four, there's a lack of trust. Five, you know, they're not Americanized. So to them, it's like, why life insurance? Why would I want to leave my wife money when I die? No way. So all this stuff I heard. And I'm being honest with you. Yeah, all this yeah. stuff I heard. So I sat there. I'm like, man, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And then I said, you know what, Pat? No. Who's the customer? Who is your customer? It doesn't have to be the Middle Eastern. You are Middle Eastern. Phil Jackson is 60. He doesn't <laughs> recruit 60-year basketball players. So for me, if the target for you was executives and people who are so super busy that are trying to get the information, who have influence over others. So, so they don't have to distill all yeah, the information. Buddy, I'm telling you yeah. I would pay for it. And I'm telling you there are hundreds of thousands of people like me that would pay for it who don't have time. And I just want to trust. That's all I want. So if you create, literally, I'm, when I'm visualizing this, like the email comes, this side. Here's what Democrats will say. Here's what Republicans will say. And you quote four Democrats. You know, Maddow, Cooper, Marr, whatever you put. Here's what Republicans are saying. Hannity, Riley, you know, whatever. You put their names here. But here's what we're seeing. And then some policy analysis. I am telling stuff. you right now, if you started something like that, I would, I would subscribe. I'd be your first customer. <laughs> if you took that approach and you held the integrity that you are responsible for, not me. Journalists are dividing this country. And that is a very big opportunity for journalists to come out and say, this is not what we do. If we screw up, we talk about it. This was this, and we create a scoring system. Nowadays, you go hire two predictive analytics guy from Stanford. You pay him some money, you raise a couple million dollars, you're a military guy, you have credibility, you go to a few guys, you're in New York, I'm sure you can put up two, two to five, ten million dollars to raise over here. You go raise some money, you get two, three, four uh, predictive analytics guys. You create a scoring system for uh, journalists that they're going to be not good or not right. And you put a top 100 scoring system. Every week I'm going to be checking that. That gamification would make that website one of the top websites for news in the world that you'd be looking at. So I think it's more or less, look, all I'm hoping for is for someone to be inspired with this. All I'm hoping for is for somebody yeah. to say, frickin' hey, this makes sense. Let me see what I can do with this. Go for it. I don't even want the uh, credit for this idea. I'm just telling you what I want. I got three kids. I got a wife. I got uh, uh, two boys and a yeah. daughter. I want, I want me to be able to say, go watch this and read this. No emotions. Read it. Then you'll see exactly why they said this, why they said this. You would be the most hated, the most hated news site out there by everybody. But who would trust you? is those people who are E.F. Hutton's who have influence in their own community. I'm purely giving my opinion. I may be absolutely wrong on what I'm saying, but it's just my thoughts. There are centrists out there, more than people think, who would definitely read that. I think there's a, I think there's a market for it. So anyways, if you don't do it, uh, uh, someone's going to do it. I hope so. I'm, I'm, I, I, think, I think hopefully something will take place with that. So what's next for you? What are you up to nowadays as a journalist? I know you, I see your stuff with Business Insider. I see your stuff that you do with them, the articles you're writing. Matter of fact, you're working something right now with Iran and to create a revolution there, right? Yeah, so talk yeah. a little bit about that. What's going on with the research you've been doing on that? Well, yeah, I've been working on this article about Iran lately, looking at the various contingency planning that we've done because uh, it looks like the Trump administration and his national security advisor, John Bolton, have an interest in going back and, and revisiting this topic. And so I've been going through the reports, I've been talking to some sources about it, and it's very, very interesting. And in my opinion, it's a bit of a fool's errand. I don't think it would end very well, but... Why do you say that? There'd have to be a massive air campaign. It would put shock and awe in 2003 to shame. 
And then you have all these underground WMD facilities that special operations soldiers would have to go in and secure. These are quite complicated operations to penetrate and raid these underground facilities. Then there would have to be some sort of um, transition in government. And, and when I talk to people about it, I ask the question, is there a shadow government in Iran waiting to take control and, and, and bring forth democracy? And they're like, no. And that's the main holdup to the plan. That's why Obama said no to it in 2013 when it was offered to him. And it, it, it sounds very much like a sort of situation we ran into in Iraq, where there's that initial moment of jubilation and mission accomplished, and then everything starts to fall apart. So I, I think we have to be very careful on that subject, but we're still, I'm still working on that article and, and fleshing it all out. Is the worry that too, it's not a good idea to have a revolution, or it is good to have a revolution for the regime to change in Iran? Well, I mean, on one hand, yeah, of course, we'd like to see democracy spread. We'd like to see freedom, you know, but the, the question becomes, you know, just like during the Cold War, is every anti-communist action we take a pro-America action? This was the question I asked when I visited uh, Damascus and I interviewed President Assad a few years ago. I, I came to this conclusion that, okay, trying to topple the government of Syria might be anti-authoritarianism, but it's not necessarily pro-America to crash this government and have ISIS essentially take control of, of, of this entire country. That's bad for us. And, and I think you have to look at it the same way in Iran, that you know, regime change, you know, we, can, we can picture in our mind's eye as a sort of thought experiment that it would be a good thing to topple this regime and try to transition it to a democracy, but we've seen how this plays out for us and just right next door in Iraq. And so I think we have to be very careful and we have to be very skeptical about what we can realistically accomplish. Are you looking at some candidates that could be revolutionary, new leaders that could do that? Are you looking at some names or I, no? I, I have not made a, okay. a in-depth look at opposition parties. There yeah. are some opposition yeah. groups in Iran, um, but I'm more looking at it from the American perspective right now. Yeah. Okay, got it. So uh, to be involved or not to be involved or the benefit if we do get involved and mix it up over there to take back uh, to what it used to be with democracy? Uh, I think we need to ask ourselves all those questions. Okay. 1953 is a big date you got to look at with Mossadegh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the whole thing with oil. What happened with UK? Britain was bullying them because they owned all the rights to the oil in uh, Abadan. And then uh, when he uh, was gone because they didn't like him, the CIA was involved. Yeah. Uh, American CIA was involved. It was a pretty, some say dirty, some say necessary. And then the same thing happened with the Shah during the Carter regime, which you're uh, probably very familiar with. 78, 79, yeah. Uh, right after the toast uh, Carter did to, with uh, the, uh, Reza Pahlavi in Iran, I think on December 31st of, of 1977, next day he left, revolution got started in Iran. It's pretty ugly. There's a audio I suggest you, uh, uh, a book to read. It's called All the Shah's Men. I've heard of it. Yeah. I've heard of it. Very, very good. And I think it's... Uh, given perspective on history on what to do but the one guy right now that's creating uh, his Instagram following is growing his uh, Twitter following is growing his videos on Facebook are growing on YouTube it's growing he's being interviewed all over the world BBC is the Shah's son Reza Pahlavi who lives in DC Wow. Uh, I, I, the, the Queen Farah she's still alive if you can get a sit down with uh, Reza Pahlavi uh, representing businesses. Who are you doing this article for, by the uh, way? The company you? I work for, News okay, Rep. Got it. I think if, you, if you're able to speak to him, he'll give you a complete different perspective of a pro and a con. I sat down with his uh, campaign team that flew into 
LA from France to meet with us and we went and met with him, Reza Pahlavi. We had a three hour meeting in DC with him and uh, we went very, very deep. It was never publicized, it's not a public video, but I think he would give you incredible insight. Yeah, uh, because, I love that. Yeah, because there are American Iranians who are pro-revolution, some that are not, some are Khomeini people, some are Shah people, some hate the Shah, some love the Shah, and you have to know both reasons why. It's a very sensitive subject, and once yeah. you do write it, please send it to me. I want to be one of the first to read it. I'm very curious about what's going on there uh, with Iran. So final thoughts. Tell us a little about the book. I mean, obviously we've been talking a lot about sure, the book, sure. but what else should I expect? Tell us a little bit about the book. You know, I'm pretty proud of the book. I'm biased, of course, but uh, I'm proud of it. I spent a lot of time on it. I, I think it tells the whole story of a young man joining the military, being popped down in countries like Iraq or Afghanistan, where, you know, you, you as a young guy, you don't have the cultural or language knowledge to really understand the full context of what's going on, but suddenly in a very violent world. Uh, to be honest, the, the romanticism of being a young soldier and going on this adventure and, um, and, and the challenges of trying to become a, a ranger or a Green Beret. And uh, I, I think a lot of the books out there tend to fall into one or two categories because the, the, this has been turned into a genre, this war memoir genre. <laughs> it's either guys bragging about how many people they killed in the Middle East and waving the flag and telling people that America wouldn't be there if not for them. Or you have these sorts of works of literature that are like war apologies, like, oh, I was just a young man and the system used and abused me and left me broken and threw me out on the streets. This book is neither of those things. I think it's, uh, it's from my perspective that, you know, I'm very patriotic, I'm very pro-military, but at the same time, I, I think my experiences abroad have left me also deeply skeptical about American foreign policy and what we can realistically accomplish when we send young men and women to try to police and govern foreign populations who, you know, they, they just don't want us there. You know, they don't want a foreign imposition. It's like my squad leader when I was a ranger and we were in Iraq dealing with the insurgency in 2005. He was like, you know, I get it. He's like, imagine if the Chinese government came and, and, and sent troops to America and they were patrolling our streets and they said, hey, we're just here to help you out. Don't worry about it. And then they kick in your neighbor's front door. They accidentally killed one of their kids. And now you're in it. And the next thing you know, you're setting off IEDs, you know, on, on convoys out on I-87. So, I mean, you just have to look at it from their perspective. So, of course, there is an insurgency. You know, from, uh, you know, I love that um, story that Robert McNamara told about when he went to visit Vietnam after the war. And um, the Vietnamese general he met with was like, you, you were trying to turn Vietnam into an American colony. And he's like, no, no, that was absolutely not what we were trying to do there. But from a Vietnamese perspective, there was what, at the height, there was like hundreds of thousands of American troops in South Vietnam. If that's not colonialism, what is? No I, doubt. I mean, you can see no from doubt. their perspective. Yeah, yeah, from their perspective, yeah. Yeah, but that was not what we were trying to accomplish there. So I, I think those nuances are something I tried to capture in this book and explain you know, all of the good and all of the bad. And, and I also wrote it, um, for the, the perspective of the 18-year-old kid who's in my position when I was his age, thinking of joining the military. I, I want there to be some actual content in this book. I talk about the mistakes I made, you know, things like a friendly fire incident, because when that kid who's thinking about joining the military reads the book, I want there to be like some practical hands-on lessons that they can take away from that and apply to their own military career and hopefully avoid some of the things I got into. Well, uh, first of all, again, thank you for your service. Uh, I simply went as a 63 Bravo. You went and became a Special Forces. 
uh, ranger, you went to war, you protected this country, you put your life on the line, and I personally thank you for doing that. For those of you that are military people, a lot of people that follow by Tim, you know, you, uh, there's a lot of pro-military guys. Uh, read his book. You can send him a tweet as well. I know he's on Twitter. Send, an, uh, send us a message. With that being said, buddy, thanks so much yeah. for joining us. Thank here. you so by much, Tim. Pat. Truly, thank and you. It, again, it's really rare that you get to do these long-form interviews, so I really appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate you being open to it and actually sharing your story and your testimony with us. Truly, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid, and I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.